Toronto! I wonder if they can hear it on Long Island. Great move. What a goal. Beauty. Austin Matthews. Bless you, boys. What a game. Welcome to episode 59 of the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. I'm Nick Ashbourne, joined as always by Anthony Petrielli. And we are coming to you after a four-game win streak for the Toronto Maple Leafs. We talked about the first win uh, last week, but we've really seen kind of how this team has played without Riley. I think we, you know, we kind of hinted at it last week that we thought potentially it might not be the kind of disaster that some people were projecting. At the same time, I'm not sure either of us would have predicted that this would happen, even against competition that wasn't particularly impressive, to be honest. Without Riley, we're talking about a 4-0-0, 21 goals for against, 8 against, an outshooting opposition by an average of 30.2 to 22.3 per game. Anthony, where do you want to start in terms of what you've learned from this stretch? I actually think it's important to start up front. Uh, so we're talking, of course, about the absence of Morgan Riley. The thing is, the guys that have kind of stepped in place by and large aren't going to be on the NHL, ro- like the playoff roster, right? Like we're not about to see Max Lajoie play in the playoffs. At least I hope not. We're not, you know, at best, maybe William Lagason at best. But even then, if you get to William Lagason, you're like, like something horrible has gone wrong, essentially, to get to that point. The forwards is a different story, though, and I think the forwards are particularly interesting because this isn't as big of an absence, but it was something we kind of talked about a few weeks ago in the sense that when Callie Yarncroft, of all people, got injured, there was a lot of hesitation and concern, you know, really important player to the team. You know, Sheldon Keefe used him as a chess piece. How are they going to survive? And we we talked about it on this podcast to say. If they can't survive losing Callie Yarncroft, there's a bigger issue here. And last week we talked about when when Pittsburgh won the Cup, how Crosby only played 53 games that regular season. And it maybe taught them a few different things about their roster. And now this is only four games, so that's not as much. And we're not talking about as high up the lineup. But I think you're starting to see some of the things that we've kind of harped on all season like this is not a hot take overreaction to a couple games like we've been pretty steady and consistent in saying i think there's more to this forward group than they've been getting out of it and to me i I think the forward group has started to come together i don't know what it's going to look like when it's fully healthy and how ice time is going to kind of fall back into place but i think people are starting to see that outside of the top four there actually might be some good players here, some good, useful players that help you win games. Yeah, it turns out Callie Yarncroke wasn't the straw that stirred the drink all along with the squad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about Nick Robertson in the previous episodes. Bobby McMahon has been this huge story. I've been trying to push the narrative that I've been on Bobby McMahon all along with mixed success. Uh, but he, you know, he it continued. was borderline made up, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he continues to impress. Um, you know, the size speed combination for all of the difficulty Sheldon Keefe has had with trusting players outside of his top guys, like McMahon is an example of someone who has gotten this push relatively quickly and like a hat trick will do that for you. But, you know, he was getting less than 10 minutes a night at times. He's playing on a fourth line that, 
sometimes didn't seem to have a particular function. And then, you know, basically one big game happens. And next thing you know, he's moving up to the third line. He's playing on that second power play. He's playing at the end of games to close out close games. And, you know, we often kind of shrug off empty net goals because, you know, whatever. You can imagine, for example, the Simon Benoit one where he just like threw it from the corner down the ice. Like a lot of the times it's not a big deal. And people have actually been talking about how Matthews scoring all these goals doesn't include an empty netter kind of adds to how impressive it was. But the empty netter that McMahon scored in that game on Monday was impressive because it was him, the way he can shield the puck with his body, his hustle, the way he can move. Like, I don't... I don't think that we're going to necessarily see him, you know, supplant Nyes on the first line or anything. But at the same time, he is a example of Keith, you know, playing a little bit more of a meritocracy, like a little bit more of if you are really earning your ice time, here you go, go and get it. And I think McMahon set his career high in ice time multiple times over a three game span. And again, I don't think he's that player that elevates this entire franchise by any means, but there's uh i think there's a real moment of discovery here to be honest i i'm not gonna lie going into the game in st louis i saw the line combinations i saw noah gregor healthy scratch which i've been calling for for a while because he's done absolutely nothing and took a terrible penalty against philly and i honestly think he would have been healthy scratch the next game but they just were missing too many extra guys at that point so i think it kind of bought him one but i wouldn't be not that he will ever admit it to us, but I wouldn't be surprised if that healthy scratch had a large part to do with punching Travis Sanheim in the face up to as a fourth liner who does very little with under 10 minutes left in a, an important hockey game. So all that said is when those lines kind of got dropped and I know he did tweak them a little bit from what they were in warm up to what they ended up being in the game. I I'll be honest. I was like, like Sheldon Keefe. Nice to meet you. Like, where have you been? Like, please, please keep doing this stuff. Bobby McMahon played well and you rewarded him. Like you're seeing guys do things and, and you're like, here's extra ice time and opportunity because you have earned it. You know, like I thought those are tough games. It's a 1 p.m., but it's really a 12 noon game. Right. For like our timing. Yeah. It's the Leafs never play those midday games like they have the least of anybody in the league. Right. They're just too much of a TV ticket, all that stuff. Like, you know, that sounds like excuses to people, but that's just like these are creatures of habit. That is like like there is something to that. That is a, a weird game for them. And just watching them, they kind of just rolled their lines into that game. Right. Like Austin, like I didn't sit there, even though Matthew scored the game winner, you know, Nylander scored a beauty. The top line had the other goal with Nyes. Like, you know, you look at it, Matthews was on for three to four goals. I'm not saying they weren't full marks in it, but they were just kind of starting to build shifts with four lines like the Holmberg camp pairing weren't on for a shot against in like over eight minutes of five on five hockey together. Holmberg was great in that game. He, like he, was he had a couple of really nice moments. I remember in the first period, just like looking at the ice time distribution and after one, and I don't know why I like that really struck me is why I remember it. Cause it's such like a random thing, but like Mitch Marner had played one more second than Ryan Reeves. Mitch Marner was at 508, Reeves at yeah. 507. Now, I'm not saying like... We're not endorsing that, to be clear. Yeah, like yeah. you've got to play Ryan Reeves as much as Mitch Marner. But it was interesting, you know, again, something that we've talked about before in this podcast, like spreading those guys out and creating a scenario where you feel comfortable rolling the lines. Now, 
is that exactly the way I would have spread it? I don't know. Like, I think Tavares no. probably wants Nylander on his flank. But again, like when you're playing a team like this and you're kind of rolling and you're experimenting, like it's okay to try things that might not be the best possible thing because you never know what will happen. Like you never know. You know, I think, you know, they've told with the idea of putting, you know, McMahon with Tavares and Nylander before. It's like that, you know, you never know that you might catch lightning in a bottle of that. And, you know, even Max Domi and Nick Robertson, like that's a, a grouping that's been together for quite some time now. But there would have been an argument to be made that like this grouping is too small and too defensively limited. And we should keep those two type of players against uh, away from each other. And something that maybe didn't necessarily look like it was going to be the best thing ever has turned out to be a very profitable partnership. Like sometimes you just don't know there is an, you know, an intangible component to throwing lines together. So if you don't ever experiment, you don't ever mess around with it, you miss the opportunity to catch these things that may not be obvious on the surface. Yeah. And I like, I like the idea that it was it was a slow first period, right? We all saw oh, it. Yeah, it was it was ugly. It was a snooze for both teams, not yeah. for not for just the Leafs. I mean, hey, if you're the Leafs, you take that afternoon time and coming out of it zero zero and just like a let's get our legs into this. But I I liked that the reaction to that wasn't let's juice up our top guys and have them drive the bus for it. It was like let's just roll these lines and start building on shifts. And when Holmberg and you know, I thought Holmberg was a real driver for that line, but when him and Camp were teaming up the way that they were, I just found myself consistently watching going, it didn't matter who was on the ice. I felt good about it. I felt like they could create something. Now, St. Louis is terrible, so that has to be factored in. Like, I'm not expecting that against Vegas and Colorado coming up, but just sort of that idea where you're looking at lines starting to build a little bit and guys getting a little extra ice time and sort of you know, Alec in the post game called it like dangling the carrot and watching them kind of hungry go after it. Whereas I look at the Philly game last week when they got healthy again. And other than the core four, I believe the next forward to play like the next highest amount of forward played on their team was Matthew Nyes at 1244. And then David Camp was one second under him at 1243. And like that's that's the kind of stuff that I revert back to where Martiner played 24 I mean, Matthews played 2203. I know he had a hat trick, but, you know, Nylander was 2137. Tavares coming back from injury was 2054. And those are the kinds of games where I, I get frustrated because I kind of watch it and go, I think you could get more out of this group. And hopefully we're starting to see a little bit of some buy in and maybe some trust being built, right? That was a big thing that. Sheldon Keefe's kind of harped on the first half of the season. Like he was just blatantly saying, I, he, you know, I don't trust any of these guys. I can't find guys I could trust. I'm looking for people I can depend on that sort of thing. And so maybe it's it kind of, I wish it didn't have to happen this way where guys are like missing time in order for it to get there, but maybe that's how it had to go down. And that kind of makes you look at the forward group a little bit different. No. Yeah, I mean, like if we go back in time, I don't know, call it three weeks, call it a month, and you talk about Matthew Nyes, that's a guy who is on the first line, but maybe not fitting it perfectly, struggling to produce, having a hard time being between de being deferential and looking for his own offense. Nick Robertson, someone who's in and out of the lineup, uh, you know, good scoring numbers, some bad defensive moments, and limited trust with Keefe. 
Pontus Holmberg, someone who's just not playing at all, totally forgotten on the team. Bobby Mann, someone who is, you know, a fourth line player getting very little time playing on a relatively ineffective line uh, with Noah Gregor. Not to totally put it all on Gregor, but, you know, a little bit of a common element there. So, like, you take four of those guys, that's a third of your forward group, and you feel significantly better about them today than you did a few weeks ago. And that's, you know, prior, and I'm not saying that there's, and we will get into some deadline stuff. Maybe it's later this episode, maybe it's in the future, but like there was a time where we really felt, and I think justifiably based on what you'd seen that like, this is a group that is potentially getting added to in some kind of possibly significant way, because all these guys felt kind of fringy or they weren't quite fitting what they were supposed to be doing or, couldn't get anything rolling and yeah again you're talking about a third of your forward group seems to be taking step forward at the same time and then you know you've got the guy at the top who's on pace for 70 plus goals you still have Nylander in the middle of the season which he's really bounced back you're not hearing a lot of that uh he's got the contract he's forgotten how to play hockey he doesn't care storyline anymore so when you have that much progress in such a short period of time, and, you know, progress isn't linear. There might be a step back for some of these guys. You know, McMahon's not going to score like a goal a game over an extended period of time or whatever. But I think that the the fundamentals of this team have shifted in a meaningful way. And that's not to say that there wouldn't be bad moments with some of these guys in the playoffs. Uh, but you are just looking at a, a collection of players you have to evaluate differently now than you did a few weeks ago. Yeah, and I think they're I think it also kind of double ends things a little bit in the sense that the impact that that has on guys like Max Domi and David Camp, right? Like David Camp is rightfully taking a lot of heat. I mean, the penalty kill is really bad, and I think that might be something worth discussing, and he plays a notable role in that. Like that, you know, that's a big reason why he's here. So he definitely has to eat it, but on at 5 on 5, you know, the thing that I've continued to harp on is he's been playing by and large with Noah Gregor, who was a PTO cut from like the worst team in the league. And, and so was Simon Benoit basically. So, you know, sometimes it hits Simon Benoit and sometimes more often than not, if we're being honest, it's, it's Noah Gregor and Ryan Reeves, who kind of speaks for himself as a line mate. Whereas, you know, the thing that we constantly hear is, Oh, camp was good when he had Pierre Ingvall and he was good the season before when he had Ilya Mikheyev. But the reality is, is, like they're not paying camp like $6 million. Like that's like, that's money you pay a guy to drive a line. You're paying him to be a part of a contributing factor to a line. And so you need to play him with some good players in order to get the best out of him. And lately I've just kind of found when he's starting to play with, with Holmberg, there seems to be a little something there similar for Max Domi, who's received, you know, some heat for, when the Leafs had some real secondary scoring troubles of late, you know, the three plus weeks ago that you mentioned and sort of as Robertson's come on, it's given him someone to actually p- play proper pitch and catch with. Like you saw him set up McMahon and McMahon really drove that play. You saw him kind of move up the lineup a little bit once in a while, like he did against Philly and Matthew scored that shift and, you know, they hemmed them in that entire shift. It's like, yes, again, like he's making $3 million. That means He's he's not like that good. It means you need to play him with other players that are also good in order for them to do something. So it's not even just those guys you mentioned. It's it's like, can they make some of these other guys a little bit better along the way? I think the questions are, I thought roughly around this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier in the season, like Pontus Holmberg looked really good last year, too. 
And he hit the like, I'm coming over from Europe wall. He really did. And so is he going to get through that this year? Because if he does, I think he's, uh, you know, Sheldon Keith called him the Swedish army knife, which was funny, but like, he's like, he's a real chess piece to me. Like, I, I think he's a gamer like his, he, you know, he was really good last year for the Marlies in the playoffs. He was like playoff MVP in Sweden, like certain guys like understand how to play in those situations. And to me, he's one of them. Like he's, he's really heavy on his stick and the way he's able to check guys and create turnovers and his detail to the game. And he's very rarely, in the wrong positions like if he if he doesn't hit the wall like i think he's he's a fun piece like how will bobby mcmahon start to react if if he's in the top nine and they're looking at him to be a a reasonable contributor you know not like a anytime you score it's gravy kind of thing but like you're playing with you know let's call it max domi and nick robertson like you need to actually do something on a regular basis and when you're not scoring what does that look like and when we're playing Vegas and Colorado coming up, like, how do you perform? Cause that like, that is real hockey. I have no doubt those guys can play against Anaheim and St. Louis and be good, but like, we're going to start finding out soon and that's okay. But I'm, I'm all, all that said is I'm okay with the spot that they're in with the forwards knowing Cali Yarncroft's also coming back. Yeah, I was going to say, like, not to circle back on the importance of Cali Yarncroft, which is kind of what we've been dismissing all along, but if he came back and replaced Reeves in that lineup and you had a fourth line, and I'm not saying he would necessarily play on the fourth line, but maybe he would. Who's to say? Like, if you had a Holmberg, Camp, Yarncroft line, I think that would give, you know, talk about Keith's confidence. That would give him that extra nudge of like, okay, this is a line I can really give tough defensive assignments to. And then you have that situation where the third and fourth line are kind of both equally important, but sort of do very different things. And there's a lot of things you could potentially do with Young Croak, but that's just the first one to come to mind because you're looking for ways to get Reeves out of the lineup, to be honest, when you're thinking about playing against more serious teams, which is what we're going to see. As you said, like this is a tough chunk of schedule coming up. Like the Leafs are yeah. very lucky that the Morgan Riley suspension coincided with this absolute marshmallow part of the schedule and like you know it's the sort of thing where going into it i thought okay the leaf should be expected to get i don't know out of the five games seven points at the very least based on that schedule and maybe with riley gone i just didn't think the floor was too low like i was like oh maybe they'll if they screw up they'll get five maybe and now potentially they can get 10 and it didn't hurt you at all but i mean (laughs) That's been the case with with Riley's absence, uh, as pe- they keep pointing out on the broadcast. That incredible record. I don't know. Is it 17-2-1 or something now? Something it's, in that ballpark. Uh, it's pretty Riley's outrageous. Out. Yeah, I think, I think there's a few really important pieces to note. So one is just playoff Morgan Riley. Like, I, I've kind of been waiting for this type of conversation all year where people eventually turn on Riley, which happens every season. And... If and when he stops playing well in the playoffs, I'll have a very different take on him. But at this point, I'm like, if they had a big game tomorrow, he's the only guy I know absolutely unequivocally would show up on the team. Like none of the other guys have earned it. And he's been the only year in, year out gamer. So he gets a lot of rope for me because chips down. I know I know he's there and he's present and he's in in the moment. And, you know, even if you look at the suspension, right, like we talked about it. No one else was really going in there guns a blazing. And it was it was Morgan Riley, of course, because who else is it going to be? And you saw or there's John Tavares spoke about it 
and, and he had a quote, you know, about how Morgan Riley kind of stepped up and set the tone for the team and those kinds of things. And I was like, half of me was like, I think he's describing the captain of the team. But that part aside is I I think Morgan Riley's a gamer. Now, getting to those games, those weren't teams that you needed offense from the point. Like, those weren't teams that, like, actively either played proper defense, name, namely St. Louis and Anaheim, or Philly, who does block a lot of shots, but just doesn't have the horses to match up against Matthews, obviously, who had a hat trick. But when you get into the playoffs, as we saw against Tampa, you need some level of ability to get shots through traffic and create offense from the defense. Like, I know it's not the highest shooting percentage way of creating that everyone like always loves, but the reality is like hockey is insanely tight in the playoffs. Like you need guys that can actually get shots through traffic, like create rebound opportunities, create chaotic opportunities, create opportunities where you can tip the puck. And I don't think they have a soul on their defense other than him. That's actually consistently capable of doing that. I think Lilgren is skilled enough to do that. And he's looked pretty good without Riley in the lineup, but at no point would I be convinced that Lilgren is like Lilgren will have to prove it at this point. Like he gets healthy scratched every playoffs. He constantly coughs up, you know, bad plays at inopportune times. I think the tools are all there for him to succeed, but he still has to show that he can put it together. And and it was nice to see him step up in these four games, but I don't think you can sit there and say, yeah, like Timothy Lilgren has officially arrived now. Like he's, He's here and he's a, you know, a true night in, night out top four defenseman. So all that to say is, is even the, you know, stuff about Riley consistently being a playoff performer aside, like they need the element that he brings because no one else does it on the team. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be really foolish to take this win streak and say, oh, this is evidence that suggests that Morgan Riley is overrated or Morgan Riley doesn't mean something to this team or whatever. I mean, if anything, you might, you could interpret, and this is all unprovable stuff, but you could interpret that it's something that kind of galvanized the team that they wanted to do it for him. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's his importance to the team that makes people step up when he's out. I think it's realistically, it's a bad competition as the driver of all of it. But yeah, I, people do, they like to turn on Riley because it is very easy to criticize Morgan Riley for what he isn't, right? Like people want Morgan Riley to be prime Victor Hedman because they want him to be that like dominant number one, do everything defenseman. And he's not quite at that level. And that's okay. Like it's he's not, not paid to be, it's yeah, he's, he's, not, paid he's not paid to be on this contract. As you point out, that's a good point. And that contract, as long as his play doesn't decline too seriously into his early 30s, like that is going to be a very good contract for the Toronto Maple Leafs. It, it is right now as the cap goes up. But there's just it, it's it's got to be frustrating from his point of view, because as you said, he always steps up in the playoffs. He has given everything to his team like you could not ask for more from Ryan than what he gives. But because people have just a great representative, honestly, to be a Toronto Maple Leaf, a hundred percent. And because people have this idea in their head of like, this is a top number one defenseman. You cannot win the Stanley cup without a defenseman like this. Morgan Riley is trying to be that for Toronto and he's not that. And people have difficulty with that. But to be honest, a lot of what anything that Riley has struggled with this season. And if you look at his on ice numbers, they're not great. Um, 
it's a lot of it is is kind of pretty easily tied to TJ Brody, to be honest. He's played most of his minutes with TJ Brody. Brody has really struggled on the right side this year. We saw in this little stretch a lot, lot better, a lot more energetic on the left side. Like it, it really kind of puts into focus what the decor could be if you go and get that the guy that plays with Riley. It just feels like everything suddenly falls into place. Like Benoit and McCabe is working. Maybe there'll come a day when it doesn't work, but it's been working for you know a quarter of a season plus now. And yeah. you know Brody and Lilligren also seems like a perfectly good pair, like not a super elite pair, not a shutdown pair necessarily, but kind of a functional, all-service, any-situation pair. So you get they can to handle their business. Riley and, you know, not a, not a superstar, just someone who right, right shot, tough, relatively conservative, knows what they're doing. Like this suddenly this defense core, and, you know, Benoit deserves a ton of credit for making that picture fall into place a little bit because – you know, he didn't seem like he was anything prior to the season. I'm not saying that the Leafs are on the precipice of having an elite defense core, but I do believe that the general public consensus about what this team is and can be defensively um, might be underrating them a little bit. And that's forward play too. That's not just all defense play. But since the beginning of this year, since January 1st, they have allowed the second fewest shots per 60 at, at five on five, 24.58. Only the Hurricanes have been better. And it's not all about shots. Some, if you look at kind of chances, expected goals, like the quality is sometimes there. There's still the turnover tendencies. Lilligren is part of that. Um, it's not all totally clean, but I just think there's this perception that the Leafs in this kind of core four or era almost every year, the core four and Riley, people imagine the Leafs in their head and that team is good at offense and terrible defense. And that's shifting a little bit. Yeah, and I wonder to your point too, is you almost have to look at it as five-man units, right? Like we talk about Colorado all the time and they just blitz people with their top guys. Like McKinnon's going to play with McCarr and Taves and Randon's on the ice. And, you know, it doesn't even matter that Jonathan Druin's on the ice with them because those other four guys are just so unbelievably good and the Leafs can't do that. It must be fun to be Druin, to be honest. Oh, just, I mean... <laughs> He's making what eight hundred fifty thousand, yeah, and yeah. he's gonna chill to like a fifty-five point season, and make the playoffs and whatever. Anyways, I'm not gonna talk about Jonathan Drew. But all that to say is, they could kind of play with it a little bit, right? Depending on who they match up against, ultimately in the playoffs, in the sense that, like, you could feasibly just play Brody and Lilligren with the Matthews unit, and that would free up Riley and whoever his partner is. Con- you know, again, conceivably to play with like Tavares and Nylander, like it, like you can work those like units around. Like you have Benoit McCabe who just, I just feel good when they're on the ice. Like, I just feel like safe. Like, I just feel like they're not going to do anything insane. And at the same time, I think if like anybody has their head down, like you just kind of like light up. I mean, he absolutely leveled Cam York like that hit was just massive along the wall and then you see him take the run at Pavel Buchnevich and honestly the thing that I appreciate most about Benoit is a lot of guy like we hear it now all the time right like oh it was a big hit like why you gotta fight Benoit Benoit doesn't shy away from it like he he leveled Buchnevich and then Braden Shen crushed him and he knew he was like yeah I I I took a full on run at one of their best players. Like I would, ex- uh, you know, like you could see him sit there. Like I assume that someone would try to take a run at me. 
And like he did get run and he got lit up on that hit, but he took a hit to make a play like he t- like the Cam York hit. Like he again, like he I mean, he knocked him out of the game. Like He full out crushed him. And Delorier is like one of the best heavyweights in the league at this point. And he's like Benoit just like, yeah, like I got to I got to take it like I no bones about it. I just I just laid out one of their like better young players. Like, I, I, I know I'm going to have to step up. Like, you saw when he fought good Branson against Columbus, and that was because he was giving it to Fantilli, who was, like, whining about an icing or something. And good Branson just, like, was like, no, like, you can't talk to, like, my 18-year-old guy this way. And, and like, Benoit, again, he knew it. He's like, all right, like, I guess we have to fight. Like, that's just – I totally respect how he goes about his business, basically, is the point I'm making. He's willing to lose some fights. So put it that way. His his record in fights is not impressive, but yeah, he's willing, you know, half of life is showing up and uh, that's Simon Benoit's attitude towards kind of standing up for himself in those type of scenarios, which is good because a lot of guys avoid that. And uh, you know, for the, however fair the kind of reputation of the Leafs being a softer team is like he, he brings an element. I mean, him and McCabe both as open ice hitters, are pretty impressive. Like, I don't know if you can truly compare, like conceive of them as a shutdown, like a true shutdown pair. But the reality is like, not every team has that. Like, it's very difficult to get like extremely strong shutdown defensemen. It's like a very, you know, bit, all the things you'd imagine, big, strong, can move, not too old, yada, yada, yada. Like these guys are highly prized. There's a reason why teams don't always have them. And I, I think this is something that, Leafs fans get into with this team where no matter what they would do or not do at the deadline, whatever tweaks you make, like you're never going to be able to seal every leak in the team. Like it's never going to be this perfectly constructed. And part of that is due to the contracts and the way the cap flattened out. Like you could, there's a million things you can look at, but even if you don't, like it's just almost impossible to put together this perfect hockey team. Like people want every weakness to be, closed and it's like oh max domi isn't a good enough third line center whatever it's like maybe that's true maybe he there are better third line centers out there more complete players that you could conceivably have but they just don't at this point that will be something that maybe you consider to be a slight weakness based on some of his deficiencies like every team has slight weaknesses and so the idea of oh this maple Leafs team is so far from being that perfect team that they aren't a contender you shouldn't add or things like that just because you can point to a few weaknesses, it doesn't mean that other teams aren't the same. Other teams have weaknesses too. Nobody's perfect. Like the Leafs aren't a juggernaut by any means, but I think that sometimes the pessimism gets over the top because people assume that the bar is, I can look at this team and I can't point to a significant weakness. And that's just not a fair bar. Every team in the league can upgrade their bottom six. Like There's not a single team in the league who bottom six in isolation you look at and and go, yep. They're sick. I mean, that's it's all stars yeah. down there. Yeah. Like you might look at a single player who's like their seventh forward and say, I mean, if that guy's in your bottom six, your bottom six, you know, you're a really good hockey team kind of thing. But by and large, you're always going to be able to poke holes in a third or fourth line. That's why they're third and fourth lines. I think the thing that we're trying to trend to here is can they fit within the concept of a team, right? So if you're looking at Holmberg not hitting a wall this year, and continuing to have a little something going with David Camp and potentially Cali Yarncroft, you know, rounding out that as like a proper trekking line that you can trust to close periods and 
that sort of thing. Take some D zone draws. You can alternate between camp and yarn crock, depending on handedness, all this fun stuff. And then you look at the third line and say, okay, well, I mean, Domi and McMahon aren't, they're definitely not going to score all the time. They're definitely not going to produce all the time, but can they create some zone time? Can McMahon use his body and get in on the four check? I think there's some value to the, um, we'll call them antics that I think Max Domi can bring to the table. Like, I do think that is something that has been missing by and large. I even look at the, the goodest play on McMahon and then Domi going after him. And it was, it was kind of one of those watching it live where I was like, before Domi did anything, I was like, did he actually just take a shot at him on the ground? And, and like no one else on the Leafs was going to do anything. And that'd be the kind of thing a year ago, you know, past five years, we'll call it where that type of play has happened. And they've been like, whatever we scored and like, we're killing them. And I just, it was the lame play by Gudis. Like I was happy to see him respond. I think. I think there is something to that, especially when you're going to play Boston, you know, potentially or Florida. Like those are dirty teams that feast off it. Like you need guys that are going to be in that kind of arena and battle and not where, you know, Gudis levels camp and everyone kind of stands around and watches it, which is what happened last year in the playoffs. Like those are the situations you have to avoid or where, you know, Kachuk's just punching Marner in the face and, at the end of the game and and that just kind of is what it is and everyone just stands around and looks at their skates or looks at the crowd and i think you will need a little bit of that gamesmanship i like like you talked about the bobby mcmahon empty net goal against st louis honestly the thing that i liked most about it which is going to sound potentially weird is like it was probably a penalty like he he definitely had his free arm out like there was some clutching and grabbing and right after that game ended i watched the end of boston dallas and Boston tied it and then they went on to win like the ninth round of the shootout. But a couple minutes before Boston tied it, they were obviously pressing and Dallas broke in on a two on one from like center. Like Jason Robertson had the puck and he got tripped like clear as day could not have been more clear puck on his stick. Wide open two on one down the ice. One of the better players in the league in Boston gets tripped. No call. Boston ties it like a minute and a half later. They end up winning the game in, in a shootout. And I was just kind of watching going like, this is, this is Boston. Like, this is just, this is like, you can't even complete like, at some point you have to fight through it or give it back. Like, I don't think you can possibly just be like, let's turn our noses at it and try to play through it. I don't think that works. I don't think it works. I don't think, I don't think we've ever seen it work against Boston. I think you need some of that clutchy and grabbiness we'll call it and you need guys on your own team that are going to bend some of the proverbial rules and essentially fight fire with fire yeah it's interesting because from sort of a, a thirty thousand foot view intellectual standpoint you could say the Leafs are a team that doesn't take many penalties and they don't draw many penalties and they play a lot of five on five and in the playoffs you're not necessarily going to get as many calls the Leafs will be comfortable playing a five on five that'll be a good environment for them. But that's not realistic to what the playoff game is actually like. Just because more fewer penalties are being called, like in the games the Leafs are playing where fewer penalties are being called, generally speaking, that's because fewer penalties are being committed because it's less of a chippy game. The playoffs are not like that. Just because there are fewer penalties called, it doesn't mean the environment is like the environment that the Leafs generally play in. And I think that's part of the reason why 
they've struggled in the playoffs at times is because a playoff game is a little bit less familiar to the way they generally play compared to a team like Florida that is playing in, you know, for lack of a better term, these kind of like greasy, chippy games all the time. And, you know, Max Domi isn't going to single-handedly bring the Maple Leafs to that place. He's been on the team the whole time and it hasn't kind of radically changed the paradigm. But the idea at the very beginning of bringing in the Bertuzzi and bringing in the Domi and bringing in the Reeves to a lesser extent was to get some of that into the Maple Leafs game in a way that replicates playoff hockey a little bit better over the course of the year. We're not going to know the result of that experiment until the time comes. But, you know, Bertuzzi had his great run in the playoffs last year. Domi was good in the playoffs last year. And these guys that for part of the year, and less so Bertuzzi because he's mainly played with the top guys, but these guys that have been kind of pushed to the side a little bit early in the year who are showing themselves now, some of these type of guys are the type of players who theoretically, like you think of McMahon's size and strength, for instance, are the type of players who have a chance to thrive in these situations. Like I, I have no proof to say Bobby McMahon is going to be awesome in the no. playoffs, but I could envision a world where Bobby McMahon is like, you know, scores two goals in a series because like he just, he gets the net, he fights through contact. He's tough. He creates offense. He's a big, pressure. strong dude. Like he's strong. Oh. And that, that comes through in a lot of the plays that he made. Like, he's got the the shot, not quite like a Nick Robertson level. Like, he's got a nice shot, and that has created some of the goals. But some of the goals have just been, like, him being a big bruiser and just getting there. And, like, that's part of why the idea of a Domi-McMahon-Robertson line is kind of interesting to me from the, like, g- geometry of it. Because Domi is that central piece who's distributing, and McMahon is good at the net and Robertson's more of like a mid range shooter type. And so even though you have kind of two scores and one playmaker, they're not necessarily two scores that work from the same area of the ice. And so I can see a scenario where that works and I don't know, will it be a long-term play? It's hard to say, but uh, I'm intrigued by what it could be. The not to shift notes or catch you too much off guard, but I'll also note that the league just came out that they upheld Riley's five game suspension. Um I don't know if you want to comment on it too much. I just I mean that's very typical of a podcast that the news would drop uh in the middle of it. I mean we talked about it a little bit beforehand. I I there the game is against the coyotes in theory you should be able to win that game without Riley. You know the the suspension was a bit heavy in the first place, but at the same time, you know, when you're letting appeal go through, you're kind of admitting fault. Uh, that you gave the wrong suspension in the first place, and I just don't think that they love doing that. Yeah, I mean, uh, instant thoughts were one, I kind of laughed. Two, it was like, league is a joke. Three, it was like, I wasn't expecting much different. I mean, the appeal was on Friday, and it took them until Tuesday at noon to make a decision. I mean, what were you thinking about for the past three and a half Possibly four days, to be honest, because if it happened at noon, we're talking four days. Yeah, and, I mean, like, it's what were you thinking out? Like, why did you need that much time? It makes no sense. I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Like they they kind of can drag it on so that when the decision comes down, it feels kind of inconsequential anyway. So then there's not going to be some further news cycle about this controversy, whereas if they had done it after like one game and then. It'd be like, oh, we're upholding suspension. You get a whole other news cycle of like, oh, they're doubling down on this dumb suspension, blah, blah, blah. Whereas now 
everyone kind of shrugs and sighs. And I'm not saying that's the way they should go about it. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm doing a little PR strategy for the NHL, that's probably the way I would do it. If I was doing it for the Leafs, I'd probably come out and say, I look, you know, thank them for the appeal process and all that fun stuff. And then I'd probably end with a line, something along the lines of, we look forward to the league upholding this new consistent standard moving forward. Because that's ultimately why I laugh and say it's a joke. I'm not saying like, hey, Riley skated across the ice and cross-checked the guy high. You're going to get suspended for that. It's after the whistle. I mean, I understand why he did it. I have no problems with why he did it. But you're going to get suspended. And fair enough. I, Riley knows that too. I think, you know, based on Batman's statement, he was the first one to own that. So fair enough. Like like we said at the time, probably should have just fought him. But it is just not consistent with the calls or lack of calls that they've made as a league. So to me, like I think a lot of people will still look at it and sweep it under the rug. I would already be starting playoff gamesmanship right now if I was the Leafs and sort of taking this as an opportunity to be like, that's a joke. It's always us. If this happened, San Jose, LA, nothing even happened. Like there's nothing, maybe a game, maybe a game. I like I think you I think you have to put it like back on the like you like you took their serve and now you have to serve back and kind of put it on notice. And this is something that happens in every sport. Like they're constantly working the officiating system. I just I don't know. I've made my thoughts on it pretty clear for years now. I just I think the the standard is ridiculous. Um based on all the attention the Leafs get. I think they just constantly lie down and take it. I you know I know people say well you don't know if they were doing anything behind closed doors. You think that's how you think that's how you get things done by like privately what pulling over Gary and saying hey Gary like this is unfair. Absolutely you need the media, you need the fan push. Like that is like you want to talk PR, that is PR. It's not pulling over people behind closed doors being like this process is shit. We're constantly getting lit up. You have to actively make that a public known thing because now that becomes in their minds of people going, all right, well, this is unjust. I just, I don't think that they play it. I don't think, I think they just want to stay away from it all. And I get it. I just think it's gone on too long. And here we are. Yeah. I mean, like Gary and the NHL, they don't want to be embarrassed, right? Like if you go behind closed doors and you say, this is stupid, like get real Gary, he'll forget that conversation ever happened. But if you use, you know, Toronto is the biggest media market there is for hockey in the NHL. Like if you use that lever available to you and make, you know, create a perception where the Leafs are victimized on this, which, you know, the numbers, you know, the you can quantify it in terms of the suspensions given to the Leafs, suspensions against the Leafs, most least, not rocket science. Put those numbers out there. So that next time the NHL is handing down a suspension, they have to fear that it is going to appear to be part of this established story, right? Like kind of last time we talked about, I said like, oh, they're worried about looking biased towards the Leafs. Well, if the narr- if you make the narrative that they're biased against the Leafs, then maybe they'll be afraid of looking like they're biased against the Leafs make t- next time they make a decision. And that's like the best you can do. You can't, it's ultimately, it's out of your control like you can't change the laws necessarily. You can't make it consistent because it's probably not going to be consistent. 
that's just maybe not a realistic goal. But if you can change the perception that like there is an anti-Leafs bias in this, then there's a chance you'll get better outcomes because people don't want to feed that perception. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious because Brad Chilling was supposed to speak last week and then again they appealed. So presumably that was why it was canceled. And we had actually delayed recording our podcast that week because we thought he was going to speak and we wanted to be able to address whatever comments he made. So personally, I hope that he still plans on speaking. I honestly think that he should speak in general right now. We're two and a half weeks away from the deadline. Like, what's going on here? We haven't we haven't heard from you since the Nylander extension. Not that I'm looking for Brad Tree Living to be front and center all the time, and he probably just wants the focus and attention on the team and the players. But right now, you know, if they were continuing to lose, I think it would have been an important time for him to speak just to pull the attention away from the players and the team. But now that they're winning a little bit, it's probably a little bit more of a hesitation in the sense of like disrupting anything or disrupting any flow. So I'm I'm curious how he plays it. I think, uh, you know, we're definitely going to hear from him after the deadline. It would be nice to know kind of what, from our fan perspective, it would be nice to know what he's thinking ahead of the deadline, but I wouldn't ex- necessarily expect him to tell us really much of anything. And the reality is the last time that he sort of spoke on adding to this team midseason and he expressed a little bit of caution about that the team was not looking as good as it does now. And I'm not saying like the team has become again, this incredible, you know, machine that is going to roll over everyone. Like we're going to see what happens when they face the golden Knights, when they face the avalanche, things of that nature, but the situation is different. And so the situation has changed, but our knowledge of how he perceives the situation has not changed because he hasn't spoken. And he doesn't, necessarily owe that to anyone but like you said from our perspective it would be helpful for him to kind of set expectations even if he wants to set them relatively low like he could say we're not necessarily looking at moving our big assets we like the team we have in place it seems like it's really coming together and if we can sprinkle around the edges that's something we'll consider like you could argue whether that's the right thing to do or not but even if he said that i think that would benefit him in the long term to again set some level of expectations because if people go in and they have no idea what to expect and then especially if it ends up being relatively modest what he does that's going to create backlash for sure especially if the team is doing well yeah that's a good point i mean if he's planning on a big swing i don't think he really owes us much just make the swing and then come out and be like yeah that's what happened but if he's planning on doing very little i would probably want to reaffirm that with the market because I know every single person I've come across is is basically like, all right, like when are they adding to this group now? Like we like I think there was some trepidation at one point in terms of whether they were a playoff team. And I wrote about it extensively saying, yeah, like they're going to make the playoffs and yeah, they should be looking to add and like, let's not get it twisted. And I think now people are starting to look at the standings, kind of sort themselves out a little bit going, OK, like, I mean, realistically, this is a playoff team. Something drastic would have to happen in order for them to just entirely miss. So now the attention has turned to, okay, well, how are you helping them succeed in the playoffs? And to your point, if it's just a very minor little tinker, I don't know if the market will necessarily appreciate that. So not that he should be making moves to appease the market because he shouldn't. That's not how it should run. But it is important when you're the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs to manage the expectations of the market. And 
you know, to your point, it's one thing to say it a few months ago of like, I don't like to build at the deadline, yada, yada, yada. And then it's another to be in pretty good playoff standing and and then not really do anything. And fans are just going to be very confused by that whole operation. So I'm curious. I'm curious if he if he addresses this Riley suspension in any capacity. I'm curious how he plays this. I I don't know if this is too much of a hot take, but I was kind of looking at, I guess, the body of, of work so far this year. And I thought to myself, if he acquires a like a legitimate top four defenseman at a palatable price, considering all the talk about supposedly how bad his offseason was, like, is it really going to be that bad? I mean, so Simon Benoit was found money. Yes, you can you can quibble with Domi and Bertuzzi, but like if they're contributors and the team makes the playoffs and they're good in the playoffs and they're, you know, each only a, a they're only signed for a year. Like there's no attachment to this and also it's worth remembering that like there weren't a ton of better available options either it's not like he signed Bertuzzi and there's a lot of guys out there that could have fit that role at a similar price like he was considered sort of a top of the market winger and at Domi's price I don't think you were necessarily finding someone significantly better either and and I think that rings even more true on defense probably the biggest one I've heard right that they signed John Klingberg and I've I've heard the Eric Gustafson argument I think Eric Gustafson is terrible and can't play in the playoffs. I understand what he's done so far in the regular season. I think you have a real problem if if you're depending on him for anything other than power play duty come playoff time. So I'll be curious to see what happens with that with the Rangers. If he gives them 20 good minutes a night, if he gives them 18 good minutes a night, I'll sit there and, you know, with a lot of it being five on five, I'll sit, I'll put my hand up and say, okay. I was wrong. I mean, I guess they should have, but he's a player who continually puts up like quality offensive numbers and has never gets the trust of his coach. Yeah. And like, that's a pretty strong indicator that like, it's like, Oh, this guy is literally producing, but his coaches hate playing him in difficult situations. Like, okay, well there's probably a reason for that. He's not like like every coach he's ever had is an idiot. Like, is anyone, is anyone watching the least power play going, man, I wish if only they had Eric Gustafson right now, that would (laughs) have, You know, like they're terrible and they they just really need that. So I don't know. Their defense market was was awful this summer. They took a one year swing on a guy. Didn't work. Like, would would you have rather have given Ryan Graves seven years? Would you have rather given Gudis the what three year twelve million dollar deal? Who didn't even want to come here? Oh. Um, you, like you go down the line. His agent like, did a great job with that. Like a guy, yeah, his good, agent stage getting that contract, not bad. Good, good for him. Like the Ryan Reeves one will stand out, but it's it's largely variable. Uh, so to me, it's it's like a hard shoulder shrug at best. I didn't like the Sam Lafferty trade. I don't think it's the end of the world. I think it would have helped them early on in the season. Like he also got healthy scratched a week ago. Justin Hole hasn't played all of February. Like you go down the line of guys, you know, Noel Chari has four points this year in 39 games. He signed a three-year, $6 million deal. That's insane, right? Like you kind of, you go through it. You could you could maybe argue Michael Bunting in terms of production, but he's another one that, like he's been on Carolina's fourth line and in the doghouse repeatedly. At one point, the Daily Faceoff was reporting that he was available for trade because they just want to get rid of the contract. I don't know if that's still true. I just never appreciated his antics. And I was constantly vocal about that. I just thought he ran his mouth, never backed it up, and dove constantly. So I'm just okay not having that on the team. Everyone knows my feelings on Alex Kerfoot. Absolutely not. Like, 
you know, it's Luke Shen. Before we knew each other, we both like independently, fiercely hated Alex Kerfoot for years. Yeah, small so, and probably our, our shoot, I mean, <laughs> our greatest common ground just doesn't like, do anything. Like I'm super happy for Luke Shen that he signed that contract, but like in no world, and I think everyone knew it the second it was announced. I I would have loved Ryan O'Reilly. I don't think it had anything to do with money. Like they clearly could have paid that. I mean, Tyler Bertuzzi is making more than him this year. So that's you know, clearly something else was going on there. I don't know. Like ultimately, I, like I said, if they add a defenseman, you know, the Cowan pick looks pretty good. He seems to have found a few good quality depth guys. The young players have come up and they seem to be grabbing spots. I don't know. I like, I don't know if it's a hot take. I, I, I need to see what happens to the deadline. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like it, that could trend to a fairly respectable first season. Yeah. I mean, it, we were glossing over Bertuzzi and Domi and kind of assuming they'll be good, which like there's reason but to believe I, they will, but like, it's not, I also sure think thing. the second line is the best that it's been with Bertuzzi there, even with him not really producing that much. Like to me, that's still the most real second line they've had for years. That's fair. It's uh, <laughs> I, I know, like the Klingberg issue is like, not only was he bad, but like you also are now taking more assets to go and fix that problem. So that's a bit of a black mark, but I know it what you mean. It's probably think- going to happen either way realistically i think think the um the perception is probably like the general grade of maple leaf fan would give Trilliving is probably lower now than it could easily be later on but for to get people like what Trilliving did you're gonna need a playoff round win yeah to be honest like there's just no even if things kind of work out well and domi and bertuzzi do well in the playoffs and kind of even bertuzzi comes on a little bit at the end of the year like no one's going to give him any credit unless there's some kind of advance in the playoffs. That's just the reality. He also should note really um, of like naming all those Leafs that signed elsewhere because that was such a topic talking point early on. Like remember when Justin Hall was leading the league in plus minus for the first like three weeks, people were whining about that. Like people all of a sudden miss Justin Hole. All that to say is like he avoided the one thing I will fully give him right this second doesn't matter how anything goes is he avoided any sort of long-term mistake like he hasn't traded out of anything they've kept their prospects like they're playing young guys for the first time in years and they're seemingly doing this thing called developing where they like get better as the season goes on and you continue to play them uh which is rare it has not happened here for a couple of years and like nobody's signed to any like any sort of inconsequential like there's no bad contracts. Like you might not like that Bertuzzi's making five and a half million this year. And fair enough. I'm not going to argue that, but it's a one-year deal. It's a, it's a flyer and it's off the books. Like they're like, they're reasonably well situated. Like moving forward. I don't like the Nylander annual average. I've been very vocal about that, but like some reasonable credit to like getting it done to getting Austin Matthews done like locking kind of the situation of of the outlay of the team for the next few years. Like it's a pretty clear picture of what you're building around moving forward now with potentially some young guys in the fold too on cheap deals. Like I don't think it's a, you know, he didn't sign Elias Hampson off to the big contract that a lot of people threw out there. A lot of people were like, give him. Hey, I mean, he's looking good now. No, I I wouldn't have given him the the big contract, but like, yeah, yeah, no, he took him to Arvin. He, he fought him for every dollar. It was like, that's the right thing making all these guys earn it on one year deals and giving themselves a little bit more flexibility is good. Also on the Nylander thing, like first of all, I'm not sure how much like they should have got done earlier, whatever there's ways to have brought that number down, I suppose. But also when you think about Matthews 
and his next contract, I know that it is large in the context of the league, but I think it easily could have been larger too. Like if you think of the two of their contracts combined, I think it kind of works out to what you would want. It's just math. It's a nice way, slight, nice way of like, of looking at that, but yeah, slightly less than Nylander making slightly more. Um, and you know, the way Nylander broke out at the beginning of this year was pretty difficult to foresee. Like it just wasn't a level of production we've seen from him before. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I'm I'm open minded to the idea that it's not some terrible off season, and I I don't know if I have some a massive amount of optimism that Trilliving is the guy who's going to bring the Leafs the cup or anything. But I don't, which have is fair, which the is fair. baked in pessimism that some people, you know, we're less than one season in, so yeah. like it, we're, it's just way too early to grade anything. And I, I know that like Ryan, the Ryan Reeves deal sends this like massive alarm bell for a lot of people and like i you know i didn't like it either i don't think yeah i get many that. people i get that it. um but as mistakes go it doesn't figure to be as consequential like if there, Reeves there's is nothing playing crippling in the, in the playoffs then they're dealing with some serious problems and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it yeah like justin hole making over three million dollars and not playing all month when your team's in a playoff like that is a cripple like that's an issue like that is a lot of money to pay a guy to not play kind of thing. And that was a contract too. When it was signed, most Leaf fans were like, that, that is a lot of money for Justin Hole, who I actually oh, yeah. liked more Leaf than most. Leaf fans are ready to, to have him off on an ice flow for sure. They were, But we need, to, we need to see the deadline, which is what we'll talk about next week in terms of like framing it and some players that we'll be interested in. So like, it's definitely, I'm not, not saying full marks for tree living by any means, I'm just saying, I think it's trending a little bit better than it's probably been described or given credit for, or however you want to term it. You need to see the deadline. But if he's able to bring in a, a quality defenseman and lock that guy up to a reasonable contract of some kind, I, like to me, that's going to trend to a fairly, fairly solid first season for him. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. And we are going to leave it there for this week. Uh, we appreciate everyone who listened in and we will be with you again at some point next week. As per always, we don't know the exact day. We encourage you all to leave ratings, reviews, and tell everyone you've ever known about the podcast. We uh, want to do everything we can to get out there. We look forward to being with you again next week. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Stops me. Everyone is looking at me. I was blind and we're down by three. Look inside yourself and know what I see. Do you have the guts to do it for me? Gonna sweat. Gonna work. Gonna burn. It's gonna hurt. We're gonna fight. We're gonna score.